Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. In this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 8, verse 27, up through chapter 9, verse 1. The chapter break is a little bit of a challenge there, and verse 1 really does seem to fit more with the end of this story and then set up the beginning of the next. So we're going to include it on this one, 827 through 9-1. And this is really a pivotal story in Mark's gospel. It wraps up the first half of Mark's gospel, part one, and it launches part two. And in that sense, it's a very pivotal story. Part one of Mark's gospel has been all about the question, who is Jesus? And it's really been building up to this moment that we're going to look at in this section. Of late in the story of Mark's gospel, Jesus has been calling out the 12. Don't they understand who he is? Are their hearts hard too? Do they have eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear? Right? Jesus has been calling them out with this kind of language. He's pressing them to look and to see who he is. And Mark has been working on that whole theme all the way through part one. Now, Jesus is going to ask his disciples directly that question. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And the story that Mark is telling pivots on the answer that they give. Here's how it unfolds. Mark 8, 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a noteworthy city to the north, uh, up by Mount Hermon in the north of the region. It was actually a Gentile area with a famous temple to the god Pan and another temple nearby to the emperor of Rome. Seems odd to us, but worship of the Roman emperor uh, was a, a, a really a part of imperial propaganda, and it was more popular in the east, but by this time period, it's beginning to spread further and further west, and we'll see that all throughout the New Testament time period. And so there's a temple to the emperor of Rome there. And so they travel up to this region and to the smaller little villages that depend on Caesarea Philippi around that. And on the way there, Jesus questioned his disciples saying to them, who do people say that I am? And uh, basically he's saying, as you have, I've sent you out and you've traveled and you've interacted with people in the villages where we've been preaching and you've listened to people, what are you hearing? What are you hearing people say about who I am? And by and large, people are identifying Jesus as some sort of prophet. Look how the disciples respond in verse 28. They said to him, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And so people are largely identifying Jesus as maybe like John the Baptist, come back from the dead, and that's why he has these miraculous powers. We've already seen that in the Gospel of Mark. Others say, well, you're like Elijah of old, or maybe one of the prophets. They are identifying Jesus as some sort of prophet. Well, Jesus now turns his attention to the 12 and asks them the very same question. Look at verse 29. And he continued questioning them, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Notice the question. Now, not just the crowds. I want to know about you. 
who do you say I am? And Peter speaks, and really he speaks on behalf of the rest of the 12. And the answer he gives is, is correct. It's accurate. You are the Christ. Uh, the title Christ and it is a title. It's not his name. It's not like his last name. That's important. It's a title. And the title Christ means anointed one. And it usually referred to being anointed as king. Um, and so the Hebrew word for it is uh, Mashiach or Messiah. And so Peter acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed king. And that's correct. He gets the answer right. There they are in the shadow, perhaps, of the, uh, the temple to the Roman emperor. And Peter acknowledges that Jesus really is. He's the true king. He's God's anointed king. He's the one who's going to uh, set things right and deal with everything that's wrong in the world. Uh, that's who Jesus really is. And one of the implications of that is, well, if Jesus is the anointed king, that is an implicit challenge to the emperor, Caesar himself being king, to his rule. So Jesus ends there in verse 30 by saying, keep that on the down low a little bit. He warned them to tell no one about him. Let's keep that on the down low a little bit, since that if Jesus is king, that means... Um, Caesar really isn't. That means the rulers of this world are under his authority. If he's God's Messiah, then he's the one that's really in charge. So keep that on the down low for a little bit. Then what Jesus does in verse 31 and following is he goes on to explain what this means. What does it mean that he is the Messiah? What kind of Messiah is he? And Jesus' explanation reveals that he's not the kind of Messiah they expected. He's not the kind of Messiah they wanted. And Peter's going to object to Jesus' explanation. Here's the way it unfolds. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Son of Man is another messianic title. It derives from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel sees a vision of one like a Son of Man going and sitting down on God's throne as his right-hand man and God giving him the kingdom of all the world. All the kingdoms of the world will be under the Son of Man. And so this is an exalted title as well. And so Messiah, Christ, Son of Man, the anointed king. And so Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise from the dead. And he was stating the matter plainly. Notice that, that Jesus, he's not, there's no code, there's no figurative language. He's stating it as clearly and as plainly as he can for them. The problem is, is what he's stating does not fit with their preconceived ideas, does not fit with their expectations, and that's going to cause a real problem. This is actually here the first of three predictions of his death that Mark will highlight in the next few chapters. Jesus is wanting to help them see who he is and what that means. And so Peter got the answer right. He's the Messiah. What does that mean? And this is what it means. It means that he's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer many things. Uh, he's going to be killed. And after three days, he's going to rise. 
In fact, Jesus says there in verse 31 that this must happen. The Son of Man must do this. Uh, Literally, that word must is, it is necessary. This is a necessary thing. This is part of the plan. This is the way it's going to play out. It's necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected and be killed. But, notice, He will rise from the dead. That is, he will be vindicated. Death is not the end for him. He will rise from the dead. This is so radically opposed to their expectations for what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do that immediately they object. In fact, look how Peter responds. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Notice that. Peter pulls Jesus off to the side and says, no way, and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Peter just said, you're the Messiah. And now Peter's rebuking the one he thinks is the Messiah. Uh, In essence, Peter is saying, no, 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 no. That's not what Messiahs are. Messiahs are triumphant heroes. Messiahs are victorious kings. They're not ones who go and get killed. So there's no way this is going to happen to you. Indeed, like the blind man in the previous episode, Peter doesn't see clearly yet. He only sees Jesus partially. He gets the answer right. You're the Messiah. He doesn't understand what that means, and so he gets what it means wrong. He, Jesus isn't the kind of Messiah Peter thought he would be. How does Jesus respond to Peter's rebuke? Look at verse 33. But turning around and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's purposes, but on man's. Notice what Jesus does. He turns around physically and symbolically putting Peter behind him and says, get behind me, Satan. He literally put Peter behind him in a symbolic action to communicate strongly his own rebuke back to Peter. And he tells Peter, you're setting your mind on man's ideas, man's agendas, not God's, not God's purposes. You're thinking, uh, you're thinking about the Messiah in human terms, uh, about the way the world thinks about the Messiah and about what the world wants and about the wor- way the world does things. Your values, your goals, your strategies are those of human beings. God has a different plan. God does things a different way. And so Jesus is redefining what Messiahship means for them. And he's helping them to understand what it's going to mean for him to be the Messiah. Peter's right and he's wrong at one and the same times. This is important because not every Jew in the first century was looking for a Messiah. Many were. And for those that were, Even though there was some variety in the details and how it would play out and exactly what they expected, there there tended to be one common theme among them, and that was that the Messiah would be a triumphant conqueror who would establish God's kingdom. Uh, In fact, in the first century, right, the the oppressor are the Romans, and it's been uh, century after century of foreign oppression. It started in, in around 600 B.C., Uh, with the Babylonians, and then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and now it's the Romans. 
Um, and they've been under foreign oppression at this point for century after century. And the result of all that was the Jews were tired of foreign occupation. The Jews were tired of foreign oppression. And there was the sense that God hadn't finished their story. And so there was this longing for God to act. And as a result of foreign oppression, rebellion was in the air. And every now and then what would happen is some Jew would get a notion that he was going to take the reins. He was going to be the great deliverer, the Messiah. And here's the way it usually worked out. Some would-be Messiah, someone like Judas the Galilean or somebody else, would gather a following, maybe of 50, maybe of 100, maybe of 400, whatever it was. They'd gather knives and swords and come up with a plan to attack the Romans in their region. They would stir up the local populace into revolt. Um, and then the Romans, because they were trained military people and they were really good at their job, they would kill the leader. They would kill the, the uh, many of the people who participated in the revolt. Those that they didn't kill immediately, they would gather them up so they could crucify them later as a reminder, you don't revolt against Rome. And the claim of this would-be Messiah would come to an inglorious end. That's the way it worked, and that happened many times throughout the first century. Well, that sounds exactly to Peter like what Jesus is saying is going to happen to him. And that's why Peter, and presumably the other disciples as well, object and respond the way they do. But Jesus has a different vision of Messiah. He doesn't gather an army. He doesn't stir the populace into violent revolt. He's actually going to intentionally lay down his life for them, and for all who would follow him. And not only that, he calls his disciples to imitate him. So after he has just said, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to end up being rejected and killed. Peter rebukes him. Jesus rebukes Peter. And then Jesus says, verse 34, he summoned the crowd together with his disciples and said to them. So he's turned his back on Peter, said, get behind me. He's looked at his disciples. Now he calls the crowd in close and he says to them, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Here is the call to discipleship. If anyone actually wants to come after Jesus, you want to be part of my entourage? You want to be part of my band of followers? Here's what you need to do. If you want to do that, Jesus lists three actions for potential disciples. One, deny yourself. In the context of Peter's rebuke and Peter's words, denying yourself includes denying your own agenda, denying your own ideas of the way uh, messiahs should act, the way God should save the world, deny your own vision of salvation, deny your own vision of how God should actually deal with the problems of the world, deny yourself, deny your own plans, your own purposes, your own desires. Your life is no longer your own. Deny yourself, take up your cross. That's the second one. Uh, a cross in their context was a torture device. They were very familiar. And so when Jesus says, uh, take up your cross, even though he has not been crucified yet, he will be, and that'll be the ultimate example of it. And they will get that more clearly and more fully when that happens. Even though that hasn't happened yet, crosses themselves were very familiar. And they knew how awful and horrendous it meant, they knew it meant to, to die, to lay down your life. So deny yourself, 
lay down your life and follow me. Die to yourself, die to your wishes, and follow me. Imitate me. And one of the ways I like to say this is turning to Jesus requires dying to self. And that's Jesus' point here. If you want to be his disciple, then you have to die to yourself and your way of life and your opinions and you being in charge of your own life. And you got to follow Jesus, imitate him. Then Jesus goes on in verse 35 and says, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so whoever wants to save his life, to preserve it, to protect it, to advance it. Again, in the context, Peter is doing that. He's trying to save his own life by rebuking Jesus and saying, that's never going to happen to you. That's not what I signed on for. That's not what I think it means to be the Messiah. Peter's full of self-interest and how he wants things to be. And that's an attempt to save his own life. And so Jesus says, whoever wants to do that, to protect, preserve, advance, right, in some way, their own life, is ultimately going to lose it. It's not going to work out. But whoever loses his life, takes up his cross, denies himself, lays down his life, hands over his life to Jesus, says, okay, my life is not my own. You're in charge. Your way goes. I'm going to let you be the guide and the teacher and the leader of my life, right? Whoever loses his life for, Jesus says, my sake and the gospels. So for Jesus' sake and for the, the message about Jesus, that's the gospel, the good news or the message about Jesus, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he will save it. And so to renounce control of your life, and surrendering your ideas of how life should be and how life should go, uh, renouncing all of that, Jesus says, in the long run, you'll actually save your life. You'll actually preserve it. So the way to save your life is to lose your life. And every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those, if you have that, if you achieve that, then you'll count and you'll know you're valuable. You'll have true life. And Jesus is saying in context that you have to give those things up and let him define those things and follow him. And then he goes on in verse 36 and says, For what does it benefit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? This is one of those places where I just wish translators would have been consistent. I don't understand the inconsistency. In verse 35, we have saving your life and losing it, losing your life and saving it. Verse 36, they've translated the, the very same word translated life in verse 35. They translate it in verse 36 and 37 as soul. It's the same word, psuche in Greek. And the word psuche, soul or life, it, it, it means life. It can refer to the immaterial part of you, but more often than not, it refers to your whole self, the deepest part of you, your true self, your, your true life. And so that's why it would be helpful if they would just be consistent. If they're going to translate it life in verse 35, they should translate it life in 36 and 37. If they're going to translate it soul in 36 and 37, then translate it soul in 35. Let's just be consistent so we can track what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is you have to give up your whole life. 
that which defines all of you, your whole self. That's the idea. In verse 36, and he says, what, what good is it? What benefit does it if you gain everything there is that the world has to offer, but you you forfeit yourself, like your your whole true life. Losing that, losing your whole true life is one of the worst things that could happen to you. Like just being a ruined shell of a person is not a good thing. And so what can a person give in exchange for his soul? And then Jesus goes on in verse 38 and says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, again, this exalted royal title for Jesus, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise, and there's still going to be a glorious kingdom. When, when the Son of Man comes in the glory of his Father, the glory of God himself, when he comes into that, and again, think back to Daniel 7, the picture of da the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the Son of Man coming into the very glory of uh, the Father himself, the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne. So when that happens, when the Son of Man is actually vindicated and given all the kingdoms of the world with all the holy angels around him, right? Like this day is coming. He will be vindicated. But if you're ashamed of him um, at, at the present time, well, then he's going to be ashamed of you at that time. That's the point. And in context again, Thinking of Peter, Jesus implicitly saying, So Peter, and anyone thinking like Peter, don't be ashamed of the kind of Messiah I am. That's Jesus' point. Um, in fact, Peter, you need to imitate the kind of Messiah I am. You need to learn to walk the way of the cross with all its pain and all its shame. And what Jesus really is adding here is not just that turning to Jesus requires dying to self, what he really adds is it also entails embracing his way. Instead of being ashamed of it, you have to embrace it. That's his point. Um, he's challenging Peter, the disciples, us. He's challenging us on being ashamed of his way, of his words, of his kind of messiahship. Um, and if you, you think back to what Peter just did, you see part of the reason for that. P Peter's pulling Jesus aside and rebuking him because he's ashamed of the kind of Messiah that, that Jesus is saying he's going to be. I mean, if, if, if Peter thinks Jesus is the Messiah and then Jesus goes off and gets killed, that's going to bring all so sorts of shame and disgrace on Peter himself, right? Stakes his life on Jesus. He goes and dies. How disgraceful is that? And not only that, the cross itself was a cause for all kinds of shame and disgrace. It was the lowliest kind of death a person could die in the Roman world. That was actually one of its purposes, was to just completely humiliate and disgrace a person. In fact, they actually have anti-Christian, uh, they found a, a little bit of anti-Christian graffiti in, right in the capital in Rome of a Christian worshiping his savior, right? And so they have a cross and a person hanging on the cross, but the person has a donkey's head. It's a jackass on a cross. Um, and that was the way it was viewed. 
to to worship a crucified man was like worshiping a jackass, right? Like for Jesus to go and die, particularly die with a cross, all sorts of shame and disgrace on that. And Jesus is saying, um, you, you got to embrace it. You can't be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. You've got to identify with it. This is who I am. This is what it means to be a Messiah. If you want to follow me, you got to imitate this and walk the way of the cross. And then Jesus wraps up his words in this moment with chapter 9, verse 1, by saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death. In other words, they won't die until they see the kingdom of God when it has come with power. And so even though Jesus is going to suffer and die and be rejected and all that he's talked about, that does not negate his kingship and it does not negate the fact that he is bringing in the kingdom of God. Not only that, it will happen soon. It's going to happen even during the lifetime of some of those standing there, he says. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, Jesus didn't return, obviously, in the first century, right? The second coming didn't happen then. So if that's what he is saying, he was clearly wrong. But Jesus consistently has said that no one knows the day or the hour. Only the Father knows when that final day is coming. So it would seem odd if Jesus all of a sudden made a prediction here about his second coming. So it seems to me he had to have something else in mind. And what, what he seems to have in mind is likely this. Peter and James and John, in about a week, are about to get a glimpse of Jesus's glory. The very next episode in Mark's gospel is connected to these words here in verse 1 with six days later, and then you get to transfiguration. So they get a glimpse of the glory of Jesus, the exalted Jesus radiating with God's very own glory. They're going to get a glimpse of that. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Spirit is poured out and the kingdom of God is inaugurated in a new and powerful way right there in Acts chapter 2. And in fact, in Acts 1, where Jesus says, that's going to happen soon, you just have to wait for it. There in Acts 1, Jesus specifically told the 12 to wait for the Spirit so that they would be anointed with power. Notice that's the same thing he said here. Till you see the kingdom of God come with power. And so Jesus teaching his 12, talking to the 12 here in this moment in uh, the end of Mark chapter 8, beginning of Mark 9, seems to be saying, look, I'm going to die, but I will be raised from the dead. And then guess what? Some of you standing right here, you're going to experience the, the very coming of the kingdom of God with power in that moment. It's not the final day. It's not the final expression. But the, the power of the kingdom is going to come. And we see that happening in the book of Acts. All right. So let's just kind of wrap this section up with just a few reflections. The first is this. Uh, I like to call it heroes and the way of Jesus. Jesus is not the messianic hero that Peter was looking for, but he is the hero that Peter needs. And if we're honest, he's not really the kind of hero we're looking for either. Um, Jesus's strategy stands in stark contrast to our visions of success and even to our stories of how to deal with evil. Think back to maybe some of your favorite superhero movies. They make for great entertainment. 
but they typically have a very different view of how to deal with evil and to bring good into the world. Uh, one that's different from the way of Jesus. Uh, Jesus's vision is, here's how we deal with evil. We lay down our life in self-sacrificial love. Um, and that's why Jesus isn't the hero that we're looking for, right? Like, Jesus takes evil out of circulation, not by returning evil for evil and blowing up the Romans. He takes evil out of circulation by laying down his life on a Roman cross. Um, Jesus' way involves putting away your sword and loving not your life even to death. Suffering, sacrifice, death, resurrection. Isaiah 53 verse 7 puts it like this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. That's Jesus' way. Jesus laid down his life, and he calls us to do the same. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And that really leads to the second reflection, and that's just the way of the cross. If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to come to see the world the way Jesus did. Um, as a way of achieving power through weakness, uh, life through death. Um, we have to see that the way of the cross is the way to deal with uh, evil in this world. That the cross wasn't just an untimely end to an otherwise impressive ministry. For Jesus, it was the culmination of a revolutionary way of life. And that's why he calls us to walk in it. We're called to walk in his way because this is his plan to deal with evil uh, and the wrongdoing in this world, and we need to participate in that. And so, as his followers, we have to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and walk in that way. It's not just, the cross is not just something that, that provides for our forgiveness. It also offers the pattern for our life, as Jesus teaches us here.